0: Welcome to the Godspeed Institute, an enlightening and positive forum exploring all the world's religions and spiritual belief systems as an on-air classroom, in an effort to help people better understand each other, promote tolerance, and foster peace. I'm your host, Care Howlandbeck. The Reverend Canon Gina Gillen Campbell is Canon Precentor of Washington National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. In her role, she has responsibility and oversight for all worship in the life of the cathedral. An ordained United Methodist clergywoman, Canon Campbell received her education at Duke University and at the Candler School of Theology at Emory University. Before coming to her current position, Canon Campbell served as a church educator in Georgia and New Jersey, on the staff of the Southwest Texas Conference of the United Methodist Church, and as a congregational pastor in Texas and Maryland. Her 36 years of ministry include work in ecumenical and interfaith settings. As an author and curriculum and program designer, and as a supervisor and mentor for laity and clergy, serving in a variety of ministry settings. Gina, welcome to the program, and thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Well, you've had a very long and interesting journey, but I must ask first, if you could explain uh, for listeners, what is a Canon Precentor?
1: It's funny that that was your first question, because I had to look it up when they told me they wanted to make me the canon presenter here. Um, United Methodists don't use titles like that. Um, As best I can tell, it means chief singer. So that goes to the days when most of the liturgy in the church was sung. And so this was the person who would know the liturgy and would have committed much of it to memory uh, would be very familiar with what needed to be sung and placed where. So it's a way of pointing to a certain amount of uh, expertise and leadership in the area of liturgy and worship. And canon is just a cathedral title that – so there, there's also here, for instance, a canon missioner, and there's a canon for music. So it's, it's – it's, you know, another way to think about it is the head of a certain department with a certain body of knowledge.
0: Thank you very sure. much. It it seems to go through church history and various denominations um and kind of with slightly different uh you know focus uh um in 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 the Catholic Church and and in Judaism it just it's a very interesting title and uh I appreciate how it's rooted somehow in the in in a sung liturgy. Um, now 36 years that forms a wealth of pastoral experience. I wanted to ask you, did, were you raised in a religious or spiritual household?
1: My father is actually United Methodist clergy, so from the time I was carried out of the hospital, I was living in a house provided by a church. <laughs> so yes, my whole upbringing was in the Methodist church in small uh, rural communities, mostly in mm. western North Carolina. Mm. Um, and then, of course, my education was at Methodist-related schools, and then all my working life has been spent connected in one way or another to church life.
0: Mm. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for that. I get the an image comes to mind in terms of rural ministry that, you know, pertains to many places, of course. Uh, I'm sitting here in, in a rural coastal Maine, and there are very unique, you know, needs and specific needs Yes. Um, in rural ministry and in, in 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 just life, in in many ways, are there any anecdotes or any stories along the way that sort of help describe you know your journey in like in vignettes?
1: <laughs> well, one of the things I was thinking about was how early my attention got focused on the table in a sanctuary. So the Eucharistic table, some people would call it the altar. Uh, but from a very young age, that was a place I wanted to be. And there were many discussions in my household with my father about why I was not allowed to receive communion yet. Because um, in the rural south, in the Methodist church in the days I was growing up, children didn't do that until they were confirmed by and large. And, but I just had this deep desire to be there. And my father kept saying, when you understand it, you can go. And then finally that there was one year when he moved the confirmation class back to the third grade. Normally it happened in the fifth and he put me in it. And I think it was a way to just stop the questions on Sunday morning when there was going to be communion. Uh, there's, I've just always, I was raised in a culture where, um, you, they, it was a calling of preachers and it was preacher boys, you know, back in those days, there were no women. And, um, that my call, even in a sort of Protestant word preaching tradition has always been centered more in a sacramental way. So one of the things I think about is I've just always been fascinated by the life around the tables of the church. And I think that's partly because I was a very Southern girl. So dinner time was a big deal and important things happened at mealtime. And that's when families talked and that's when the generations gathered. And somehow those two things came together and, and part of how I have understood my pastoral ministry. And my pastoral ministry is very sacramental. I believe in reminding people about the power of their baptism. I remember, I like to remind people about um, the strength of the table. So that's one thing that sticks with me from a very early age. Um, another thing I, was, I think about when I think about just my experience all the way through the years. And there's just a thousand small moments where pastoral ministry gives you the opportunity to be in such deep intimacy with people. Whether it's because of sickness, whether it's because of fear, addiction, joy, new baby, marriage, uh, those moments when people get so honest. And, you know, I could name a thousand names and a thousand times in all the states I've ever lived in where. You just have this great privilege and this sense of being in the sacredness of people's lives. Mm. So those are those are a couple of places I think about. It's not so much an anecdote as it is a. I think more sort of in images for my my life in ministry, that are broad. And those are two that I think of.
0: Well, thank you so much for that because it helps to really put things in in perspective here in terms of the lens you know through which, uh, we will look at this program as well as. Um, you know, spirituality in general, when we, we, you know, when we speak of the big events in life like that, as you just mentioned, like having a child or weddings, these are the really sacred, you know, sacramental moments. And your image of the table, of course, um, isn't that just a metaphor for everyone wanting to be at the table? You know, people look to have their place at the table together. It is sacred, you know, to have a meal together, and I'm not just speaking from the, you know, from scripture in terms of, you know, when we break bread, right, that, that kind of thing. In in general, it does seem to be a cocooned, nesting, sacred kind of bubble of connection, uh, to me, and I think, you know, also when we, you know, discussing the cathedral, okay. Um, mm-hmm. I, in terms of discussing the cathedral, yes. I think that plays a role in that as well. Um, for example, the Washington Cathedral's vision statement. You know, yes. to, to me, it seems like a big table. <laughs> the uh, The National Cathedral will be a catalyst for spiritual harmony in our nation, renewal in the churches, reconciliation among faiths, and compassion in our world. I mean, this is some. This is you know. Totally right up my alley here with the Godspeed Institute. Um, But to me, that that evokes a kind of a, you know, a, a, a table, a very big table where we can all go. Can you please share the origins of this vision for the cathedral as well as perhaps some of the historical highlights?
1: You know, there's an urban myth that George Washington and Pierre L'Enfant had this place in their mind when they laid out and planned the city. And actually, um, L'Enfant did have a plan for a church for national purposes, but not this church and not on this hill, not on Mount St. Albans. For people who haven't been to the cathedral, it's on the highest hill in Washington, D.C., so it's a very – and you can see the capital from here. So there's a view from hill to hill. Um, And sometime in the late 1800s, a group of Episcopalians came together and began to actually lay out the vision for a great national church for national purposes and laid the cornerstone actually in 1907, the foundation stone. And then they would build and Prosper, and then there would be the depression, and it would not be built for a while. So it took a long, long time um, until 1990 when the church was actually consecrated. And then not long after it's consecrated, we had the earthquake, and now we're rebuilding again. <laughs> but but there's always been a sense that this would be a place, and it's it's lived in various bishops and various deans who provided leadership at the cathedral, that this would be a place where um, civil dialogue it, it could be depended upon for civil dialogue around whatever the great issues of the time are, and that are important. you know initially it started nationally, but more and more we live in a global world, so more and more we have to think about the global realities that face everyone, and that it also would be a house of prayer where everyone is welcome. So a spiritual home for the nation, a center for dialogue. Um, and that also there was, this would be a place where everyone could pray. And in every generation, you have to figure out what that means in this time. Um, I would suggest that um, the, the events of 9-11 opened people up in, in an even deeper way to interfaith dialogue and, and shared community, for instance. So um, I I think that there's always been a vision that this place would be engaged in conversation and prayer and that it would engage in a civil way and at a deep way. And that's what we try to do every day.
0: Thank you so much for that, uh, Gina, that uh, really resonates uh, with me as well. Um, Part of my journey was that um, I'm from New York Mm -hmm. and my husband and I, and our firstborn daughter um, actually moved up to Maine um, literally a few weeks before 9-11. And I sort of, I remember being very cut off from the city. Um, as, of course, everything was shut down and you couldn't call anyone and could only see the events on television. Right. And in a new place, I picked up the phone book and started calling... Uh, area churches. I think mostly because I needed to talk. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, it sort of uh, expanded. We were talking about, you know, doing a candlelight vigil uh, that Friday evening, the 14th. And it just expanded to include, you know, Christian, uh, Jewish, uh, Muslim and Buddhist uh, representation there. And we had 500 people on Camden Harbor up here. And that's essentially where the Godspeed Institute began. Um, It started out of, you know, pain um, and the need to come together. And you're right. There is something about, you know, the the global nature of what we encounter now, which is partly due to, you know, the advent of the Internet and this sort of instant communication around the world where people really share things as they're happening and people communicate instantly and come together. Um, So... You know where everyone come, where everyone can pray, as you say, a place where everyone can pray um, is a is a lovely uh, mission and and sorely needed, uh, I believe, at this time. Now, can you share a little more about your own journey? That is, you know, you started as the the uh, Methodist uh, minister's kid um, and became a minister yourself. How did you find yourself then uh, at the Washington National Cathedral?
1: Um. The short answer is it must have been the work of the Holy Spirit because I wasn't looking for it. Um, the slightly longer answer is, you know, at the time that I was coming along, I felt a call to ministry probably in my adolescent years. But again, at the time and I was raised and the place I was raised, no women were doing that. So every time I would sort of say, I think I would like to do this, I got told, um, you could be a deaconess, you could be a missionary, you could be a youth worker, you could be a director of Christian education. And so that's what I did in the first sort of part of my ministry. And then I, when I moved to Texas and I was working as a lay minister, they had a group of about 10 really strong women who were the early women, you know, the courageous women who struck out when Methodists began ordaining women and um, made a way for some of us. And I was working as the first, when I was ordained, I became then the first ordained woman in um, the, the regional, uh, re- regional education part of the church. And so that began my journey then of being the first everywhere I was at anything, so I'm the first non-Episcopalian canon presenter at the cathedral. So I started this journey then of sort of what I consider missionary journeys into um, this church has never had an ordained a uh, uh, clergywoman. This church has never had an ordained clergywoman as their only pastor. And uh, then what happened was, so I was doing very well, did a lot of teaching, did a lot of denominational work, enjoyed pastoring churches, was very good at it. Uh, found my way through orders. And then I worked in New York after 9-11 for the relief arm of the Methodist Church and got profoundly sick and had a really dark night experience. It was a very deep invitation to change my way of being in ministry. And I came out of it with a little, and it was about a seven-year period of, um, Despair, lament, frustration with the institutional church, aggravation with the institutional church, um, wanting to hear significant conversations about certain theological realities like how do we hold this much death, how do we hold, and not finding a place to do that, and working with a really gifted spiritual director and came out of that with I need to live more quietly, more deeply, and more slowly. How do I do that? And then I started worshiping at the cathedral. I had not actually been going to church very much for three or four years. I was teaching, but I wasn't attending worship. And you could come here and be anonymous. And that was a great, good gift because I could find my way back in. I could find the places that was comfortable. If I found myself crying in prayer, it was no big deal. Nobody bothered you. And then I volunteered to work in the music department. And long story short, I went from being a volunteer in the music department to the canopy center of the cathedral just because people kept saying, You're a clergy, would you like to serve communion? You're a clergy. Um, the turning point was my husband is in, in TV in town, and a colleague of his died. And his funeral was going to be here, and nobody knew him, and I did. So I preached his funeral, and they said, why are you volunteering in the music library in the basement? We need you upstairs. And then I moved into the worship department, and then I became the interim director, and then I became the canon presenter. It was was a movement of the Holy Spirit. That's all I know how to say.
0: Um, well, you, you raise many questions and, and points in there for for, for me and, uh, you know, your experience of frustration with the institutional church, many sure. people, you know, can relate to on different levels, your experience of, you know, being excluded, I guess, as a, as a woman for some time, um, you know, I'm coming out of the uh, Roman Catholic background, uh, Catholic, yeah. you know, School of Theology and, and other universities, it's interesting that you were able to be a first and, uh, and as well as have a, um, a supportive organization. Many women in this arena who have become ordained uh, uh, are sort of walking a lone path and find themselves kind of homeless because, you are know, kind of waiting for the church to catch up, as it were. Right. Um, right. So I, I, I really applaud you that not only did you pave a way, but, you know, you, you've done it in a way that works within um, you know, an institutional structure, which, you know, is for others to see and enjoy and, and support. I, I think that's um, that's really great. <laughs> but you did go through that time, and we, we can talk about this later in the program, too, um, about first feeling like perhaps you were not invited to the table um, or couldn't have a full meal at the table, let's put it that way, uh, when it comes to ministry.
1: Right. Now, well, I mean, that's happened twice in my life. It, ha- it happened when at first, Um, I couldn't find exactly a way to be ordained and actually I had to move to another place. I mean, one thing I want to say is how important mentors were to me in this whole journey. Uh, I, I have, God has placed very important and significant people in my life every spot along the way of my journey and some of them have been women and some of them have been men but it's not a journey that one makes easily alone, I don't think. When you're plowing new earth, uh, you uh, you just have to pray like crazy that God will send you a helper. Um, and I've been very fortunate that they have been there. They have been laity. They have been clergy. Um, I've learned some of the most important things I've learned about ministry from lay people who, who just gently sort of take you under their wing and say, dear, that's nice the way you're trying to do that, but this might be more effective. Have you thought about that? And so uh, I feel for people who cannot find our, you know, some people work in very isolated parishes, very um, uh, communities that are not very friendly. I I appreciate how very incredibly lonely that is. Um, So, mentors are very important, however you can find them, wherever you can find them.
0: Mm. Thank you so much for that. Now, could you share a little bit about the spiritual life and identity of the cathedral? You know, who, who is the congregation at the cathedral? What are the goals, events, hopes of the cathedral uh, for the 21st century?
1: The congregation is one part of the community that worships here. Uh, the congregation is growing. It has a very large contingent of 20s and 30s who have come from um, non-church backgrounds or are moving from one church background to another, or are making a commitment to church for the first time. So there's, there's a huge 20s and 30s group here. There's also just then what you would expect, you know, a spectrum of, of ages, a spectrum of married, not married, um, a spectrum of races, nationalities, um, sexual preferences. So, I mean, the congregation is very diverse. The worshiping community also includes just this regular um, set of pilgrims, Lots and lots of kids on school trips come through here. Lots and lots of kids who are being confirmed worship here with us. Um, there's one week every year where the Boy Scouts have a camp not near from the cathedral and all the Boy Scouts come to church on Sunday morning. There's another Sunday where the rural electrical cooperatives have a meeting in D.C. and a lot of their constituencies come and worship with us on that Sunday. So there's a, there's a steady group of a very diverse congregation and then there's this continual influx of pilgrims and visitors. So our, our community at worship is very diverse and changes every week. Um, in terms of the congregational life, they have many of, what, of the things you would expect to find in any congregation. They have book groups, they have study groups, they have mission work that they do. Um, they provide many of the volunteers for um, the Eucharistic servers, the readers in the in the congregation, um, and then. There is the programmatic life of the cathedral beyond the congregation and the missional life of the cathedral beyond the congregation. We have um, a Center for Prayer and Pilgrimage at the cathedral, which runs um, their own kinds of programs, so they have... Um, weekly nights where the labyrinths are available for people to come and pray. They have quiet days, for instance, at Advent and Lent. They'll do meditative tours of the building. So one time it'll focus on the beautiful windows, another time it'll focus on the ironwork. Um, there is an active sort of um, public policy conversation that goes on. The, the current dean is very interested in addressing the real concerns and issues of gun violence in the country, and also um, the full inclusion of LGBT communities. And so we have recently opened up the Blessing of Marriages, for same-sex couples. So there's a broad, broad spectrum of people at work. My part is very focused on the worship life, but there are people who are looking outside the walls into the city. There are people who are looking to deepen the life of prayer and offering opportunities to do that in the building. There are people who are interested in helping folks understand how our building is a spiritual message and um, has its own kind of inspiration. So, A little bit of everything happens here and and through other staff members, through people who worship, through, we have many, many, many volunteers here. So who give tours, who answer questions, who work in the archives so that the story of the cathedral can be told. Um, It's a very, very complex and interesting place.
0: Yes, the cathedral is an amazing place and um, offers many programs. You also uh, offer something like a lecture series called Exploring Islam in America, an Introduction of Islam in the U.S. Could you please share about this program and how it came about?
1: It, it was the outgrowth of the uh, hosting of the Muslim Juma prayers that we had here last year. Uh, when those prayers turned out to be as big a news story as they did, which uh, caught everybody a little bit by surprise. The people who worship here, and the people who are, are sometimes around the periphery, and also some of the people in the congregation said, we'd just like to know more. And so, fortunately, because the, the whole world is represented in our constituency, we had lots of resources to draw on. Um, some very fine teachers and professors of prayer, and of the different religious traditions and of the different scriptures, were able to come and lead a series that was very, very well attended, and it was just to answer very basic questions. You know, the scriptures, compare and contrast the way we pray, compare and contrast the history, compare. So it was, it was really a rich time. But it, it, it came to life because of the enormous sort of swirling that happened around the juma prayers
0: and uh gina we're about halfway through the program right now i'm going to want to continue um after our short break uh, to discuss that that service in a little more depth um but i'd like to just stop for a moment for a program id
1: okay thank you
0: this is Care Hallenbeck and you're listening to the Godspeed Institute, a program dedicated to religious tolerance through education and communication. When we return from the break, we'll continue our conversation with Reverend Canon Gina Gilland Campbell of Washington National Cathedral. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Godspeed Institute. You're live with CARE, and we're speaking with Reverend Canon Gina Gillen-Campbell of Washington National Cathedral. Now, Gina, before the break, we were beginning to discuss the Muslim prayer service that was held at the cathedral, and you mentioned being surprised by the kind of, I guess, news coverage or controversy it stirred up. Could you please share a little more about your experience of the service?
1: I'd love to. Um... And if I may, I'd just like to say a little bit about how it came about. We uh, hosted the National Memorial Service for Nelson Mandela here at the cathedral. And as a part of that service uh, planning, it was in partnership with the Embassy of South Africa. And I met the South African Ambassador Rasool. And Ambassador Rasool is Muslim. And so we went through this rather intense planning process together because As you might know, everybody wanted to be a part of Mr. Mandela's service in the United States. So there was quite a lot of diplomacy needed and to make a beautiful service that gave the right kind of tribute. So he and I uh, sat through some conversations where we had to do some negotiating ourselves and then where we had to negotiate with other parties to create something lovely. And the night before the service, we had had rehearsals for all the various speakers and choirs, and he and I were standing at the crossing, which is uh, right near the root screen of the cathedral, so out in the big nave, and we were looking out towards the west end, which are the doors through which one normally enters, and we were just standing there quietly, and it had been a busy, busy day, and he, he said, it looks like a mosque. And I said, how is that? And he said, well... In the very ancient mosques where you have an aisle, we would have water, and it would be used to transport the sound. And then he began to talk about when he was in prison in South Africa during the days of apartheid and how they would be able to communicate through the toilets because the water would carry the sound. And so that was the way they stayed in touch with each other. So that was a very powerful image for him. And we kept talking, and finally I said to him, could you imagine yourself praying here? And he, he looked at me, and he says, are you serious? And I said, well, I mean, could you imagine it? And then we started, we had maybe four visits, where he would come to the cathedral on the main floor in the nave, and we would just walk around and look at the building to find the spot that most physically looked like a mosque or, or where a Muslim prayer service would be held. And we found a place where the iconography wasn't, the Christian iconography wasn't right in front of your face, where there were a number of arches that were had multi-levels, which is very important in the Muslim tradition, where there was a lot of wrought iron, which would also be uh, something that they would be accustomed to, and which could hold roughly about 200 people. Because one of the things we decided early on about Friday prayers, since that's the holiest day for their prayer, or the Friday prayers, the holiest day for their prayer, we didn't want to deplete all the mosques in the community. So it was decided that um, five sponsoring groups would invite a significant number from their community, and those groups would pray together, and the prayer of the Muslim community in in the surrounding area would not be depleted that day. So that's how it started. It started because we were friends. We'd gotten to know each other. We had created worship together, which was beautiful. And then I was just surprised when he said this could be a mosque, and I thought, I wonder what he sees. And then we began to have a conversation about what one sees in another person's place of worship and what one sees in the way other people pray. And we began to plan and we, when the Friday came, it was, um, it was one of the days that I remember with great affection about this place. Um, it just, it, it, there was such a spirit of goodwill and such a spirit of gratitude that doors had been opened and such a spirit of humility on our part that we wanted to be very good hosts. And um, everybody was having to give a little bit in order to, to, to manage everything that had to be managed that day. And even the press was very respectful. I was not prepared. I think I talked to over 100 press outlets. I was not prepared for that at all. Um, and what I kept saying to people is I, they, they, they wanted to know what was your agenda, what were you after, what message are you trying to send and really, I wanted this really to live this cathedral to live more deeply into its mission to be a house of prayer for all people and a spiritual home for the nation and the reality of that is that includes Muslims and um
0: thank you so much for for sharing that um, it started because we were friends this is yeah. a this is what just jumps out at me. And yes, when you talk about a a a cathedral for the nation, and if we do abide by freedom of religion uh then you know your invitation was you know not only a a um, uh, an extension of the church into its own mission but also a deepening into what it means to be an American perhaps today
1: mm-hmm. I think that's where the spiritual home for the nation. I tend to focus lots of times on the House of prayer for all people because i'm I'm very much uh, um, moving more towards the contemplative side of things and, and sort of like to rest in my prayer. But what, the, what that prayer service, that Juma prayer service made plain to me is the power of the cathedral as uh, a convening body, as a, a, a place where people can See the leading edge of things, like where we need to be moving, and something about the costliness of that and the benefits of that. You know, it was, it was. Um, I got a lot of really, really, really horrible email, and um, from Christians, and so that was an awareness for me that, I mean, I always knew it, but I now, I now know it differently. So you have a greater appreciation of what the Muslim community is up against, and. Um, I got a lot of critique about, well, they'll never invite you back. Well, that's not the case. I've been invited to their Friday prayer in their mosques, invited to speak, have been made most welcome. So just breaking down some of those assumptions we make about other people and the power of the cathedral as a place where that can be visible, because this happens in communities all over America, I guess that's why I was a little bit surprised. Muslims worship in synagogues and Jews worship in Christian houses of worship. After the earthquake, our neighbors, Washington Hebrew Congregation, invited us to come and worship in their synagogue um, so that we could have church. It happens everywhere. When the cathedral does it, that said something different, and that was a realization for me about um, a place can have a lot of power, and so it is very important how you think about, how you welcome, how you uh, offer hospitality, how you do extend, I mean, using the table as a metaphor, not as a literal word, but how, how you expand who can imagine themselves praying here and then who actually can come and pray here and feel at home. And that's a big challenge and a big responsibility.
0: Well, I think uh also part of what you said is the um the place. Uh perhaps because it's the National Cathedral, um, it was looked at a little bit differently. for example, there are women being ordained everywhere, uh, but not you can't necessarily have that service at the Vatican. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> so perhaps you know, but at the same time I wanna bring up something else, which is, you know, there was one protester Let's say. But I think it was very, um, you know, that was very promoted in in the news. And recently, Reverend Hall uh, had an an interview with NPR, um, uh, Scott Simon, because of a new Pew survey that came out. And in this, um, Scott Simon mentions, I know there are religious people doing important and marvelous and thankless things all over the globe. And Reverend Hall says, right. And Simon says, but anybody who follows the news, even today, will hear about people killing innocents under the banner of religion. And I think as a news person, as a newsman himself... Um, You know, he can acknowledge the kind of inflammatory role that the press can play, and which is a great part of the reason why we started this program five years ago. Right, I agree with that. Because this is a place where I've had uh, a conversation like this, as I'm having with you, with members of all faiths around the world, and where people can be heard and listened to. Uh, It's not, you know, confrontational. And it is kind of unique that way. This is not a place. This is like a no bully zone, <laughs> you know. Um, but people can get also stuck on ideology and, and stuck on, you know, stymied in conversation in terms of who's right and who's wrong and who had precedent and And all these kind of issues that aren't necessarily the core of anyone's spirituality, so you know it's important to hear your story and to let you you know speak long enough to actually you know get a little more into this and not just look for a, a sound bite you know so you had a very heartening experience with the service and a and then a surprise and some challenges uh, A minister told me recently if you're not getting if, if you're getting some pushback you're doing something right
1: (laughs) I I guess what surprised me about it was the the level of vehemence there there was language I was not familiar with in some of it Um, and part of what I learned about myself in that about um, what it takes to hold open a space so that people can pray you have to learn to manage your own anxiety I mean, you just can't go to an anxious place. You have to find a place to stay in your prayer. And um, you have to just be clear about why you feel called to do this. And to me, the notion of one's religious imagination is so important um, because whatever we can imagine is never as big as God's imagination. And so how do I... Keep my anxiety down. I think one thing that ideology does is it helps bind anxiety. Sometimes that's useful. Sometimes it's a stop, you know. And so the counter for me when I find my anxiety taking hold is to try to get inside my sort of spiritual, prayerful, imaginative self and think, what could I think that's never been thought before? What could I see that could never be seen before? And how do I hold on? To, that gives me some, um, it t- takes me to a more peaceful place and it makes me more open and then it lets me co- deal with the sort of the negativity of situations in a better way. Because it always takes me to a more prayerful place. That's always where I do my deeper and better work. And so... Um, and I think anybody who's a a person of prayer would say something similar. I think.
0: <laughs> yes, and I and I also wonder because uh, you mentioned the word vehement before. I wonder how much of it is also you know fear.
1: Yeah, coming I, out as I, I anger. A lot of it was fear, <laughs> yes.
0: coming. You know, this is our sanctuary. You know, it's are we losing our sanctuary? Kind of. I uh, heard
1: exactly some of those words. Yes, ma'am.
0: Okay. So now, how then, as as leadership of the cathedral, you have a you know a, a great staff there, um, how does leadership work together at the cathedral to to guide you know services and responses such as these? How do you handle controversy as a as a group?
1: Well, I mean, we just stay in conversation with each other um, we I mean, we know House of prayer for all people, civil conversation. A spiritual home for the nation. So those are sort of guiding principles, and we just think our way through. This particular event happened so quickly. I mean, it kind of exploded into the media so quickly that basically I just stayed very, very close to our communications person, and I stayed very, very close to our dean and my fellow clergy, and we just kept saying, why are we doing this? What do we want to say about it? How do we stay you know, on the path that we've chosen? How is this central to our mission? And we just help support each other and hold one another accountable.
0: That's beautiful. Thank you very much. Um, now, and because we're also talking about the role of women in the church, um, for example, you have another lecture series at the uh, cathedral exploring Quranic teachings on the role of women. But what yeah. about the role of women in the Christian church? Um, you've been through some things yourself, so have I. Many women have. We're at a very interesting time. Um, could you, you know, what's your perspective on the development and reception of female clergy?
1: You know, I've been at this so long that, um, I've seen, I've seen sort of an evolution happen. You know, when, when you were coming along and you were the first, and I wasn't the very first, I was like in the third group ordained in the part of Texas where I was ordained. There was a kind of examination that I don't experience anymore. Now, I don't know if, you you know, I work in a place now where the presiding bishop is female and the bishop is female. And on any given year in the cathedral, more of the clergy are female than male. So I've come from never seeing another (laughs) clergywoman to working in a place where, you know, the two top leaders are female. So that changes, I think, what comes towards you if you're in a you know a middle level. My challenges here have been as much with being Methodist as being a female, because it's more <laughs> diff- it's more diff- it's more different here for me to be Methodist than it is for me to be a woman priest. Um, so I think some things are situational. I think that, you know, the more women that are in the church, and not every denomination has any women, so I have to put that, you know, there are some places where women are still not welcome, still not ordained. Um, my spiritual director is Roman Catholic. I'm very aware um, that she feels the table is broken in some ways for her, um, so it's different I think in terms of where you are right now I'm in a place where being a woman is just a really fine and good thing and people are very welcoming and like it um, that's been a delightful place I've also been you know when I the joke used to be when I first started out they commented on your shoes and your earrings because they didn't know what else to say to a woman priest so um, <laughs> so I, I mean, it, I guess I've been around long enough where that is not the first part of my identity as a clergy anymore um, in terms of where I run into issues. I'm more likely to run into issues uh, because um, in a church that's becoming in some ways increasingly secular to reach out to new communities which I believe we have to do but I never want to lose sight of the holy in that and how the holy is held and how the holy is expressed so I tend to run into more bumps with especially in a place like this how one negotiates taking a tradition of very high liturgy and making it accessible so my my challenges now are different than they were when I first started mm.
0: um, yes I can, I can hear that
1: I'm just very, very well supported here the presiding bishop has been she was a huge supporter when the when the um issues started coming around the the Muslim prayer service. I feel very supported mm. uh, by women as a woman, as a priest by by my male colleagues. The challenges now are different for me
0: yes i I hear what I hear what you're saying how to make it how to make this the high religious experience pertinent um to you know people's daily life and make those connections so that you know the verses have have actual meaning uh, to people. Putting flesh on that on that uh, on the ideas uh, so people can relate is uh, is very important. I did want to ask you though, uh, as you were speaking, do you feel that there's um, is there a female leadership style in ministry as compared to male clergy, or would you uh, say they're uh, similar? What do you? Th- What's your leadership style?
1: I I guess I feel like. There are men who are more deeply what has been traditionally called female than I am in terms of their gifts and grace and their gentleness and their collegiality. And there are women who are more autocratic than some men that i worked for. So, you know, if you kind of take those very stereotypical, there's women, there's men, this is the way men are, this is the way women are, I don't experience that as true anymore in some traditions. Now, there are other traditions, and we um, host them here at the cathedral, and we offer worship with them here at the cathedral. We support them that are very, very challenging to work with as a female priest. So depending on who the partner is, because, you know, we we do not only our worship. We welcome all communities to host their worship here, and it's my job to make it flow beautifully in our space and be appropriate to the sound and how it'll work. And and there are still traditions who we host who do not want to have to deal with me. That's not the norm, but it happens. So um, there's that I have to think about. But even then it doesn't – I guess what working here, part of it is situational. Working here I have had to get very clear. I have learned to – manage a very complex set of volunteers in a very big space so i've had to learn to be very good at details and very good at management in a way that i never had to be in the same way in a in a parish church i've had to learn to keep the big picture a very big picture sometimes um for instance, if you're burying a senator, you have to keep the big picture of what that state funeral is like while being aware that they have a grieving spouse talking to you about trying to bury their spouse. So there's, I think I've learned to be more flexible in this job, and I've learned to be more clear. I've learned to hold tensions uh, differently. So the big picture, the small picture, the detail, the hugeness of things that have to happen – um, I've learned, had to learn how to work with secret service and military. So the communities I've had to learn to work with are very different. So I guess I would think I am more flexible than I used to be, but firm. The secret service likes to tease me because when something starts getting a little far down the road, I'll say, we're not going there. <laughs> we're not going there. And <laughs> they laugh. So they, um, so I guess I have kind of a stern moment when I need to, but mm. I, I try to be flexible, accommodating, while never losing sight of the fact that worship in this building has to take the building into consideration because it will always win. Mm. Um, and so that's kind of a long answer. I don't, mm. I, I don't think I have one style. I think I have a style that's had to really change to be here.
0: Well, that's that's a great answer actually, and I, I appreciate it very much. You know, Gina, we're at such an exciting spiritual crossroads, you know, what you and I are seeing in our lifetime, Um, an intersection of growth, diversity, technology, and, of course, the timeless call to compassion. What do you see in the cathedral's future along these lines, as well as yours, perhaps?
1: Well, I always keep that question before me. Who do I need to ask? Can you imagine seeing yourself praying here? So what community have we not... um, tried to make contact with, tried to be in conversation with, tried to welcome here, um, because I I really, um, you know, I was the first Methodist to celebrate the Eucharist here in January. So the first Methodist to preside at Sunday services. I just keep looking at how can more people see themselves in the worship that happens here? How can more people... See their own prayer happening here. How can they want to claim this church as their own church? How can they feel like um, this when they sit here, Washington National Cathedral? They hear and see and feel themselves a part of it. Um, part of that is uh, learning how to use um, our web webcasting of services and to pay attention to who joins us online and when they join us. Um, we had recently, uh, we hosted the, the service for the martyrs of the Armenian genocide, and we had a huge online community for that service. And that was a very different community to worship in our nave and to use our space and to pray here. So that was informative. Uh, when Senator Brooke died, so, uh, people of, prominence in the nation. There was a huge online community for that. So how does the cathedral send out their openness as a house of prayer to more and more communities who uh, want to see what's happening in this national church? So there's an online component that I hope we just continue to be more savvy about. Um, I hope we will continue to find ways to engage our city uh, we are up on a hill, and the city isn't all up on the hill. There's a lot of city between this hill and the hill where the capital is and beyond, and we have not always been as present in the city as we mm-hmm. might be. So mm-hmm. how we continue to reach out into the wards and neighborhoods of this city would be important to me. Um, and then just being, uh, you know, to continue to be responsive, um, You know, when a tragedy happens in Japan, when a tragedy happens in Haiti, when a a person of Nelson Mandela's stature dies, how do we engage the world at moments where great compassion is needed from a praying community? Um, That we would continue to be resourceful and a little more nimble than we can sometimes be. Um, opening our doors right away and offering people a place to come and have community and prayer right away, uh, so that that experience care that you were talking about of you know you 're new in town and something has happened and you um, get out your phone book and you start looking for a church. well, can they look here and find exactly what they need at those times that 's one thing I hope for us so those are some of my just sort of initial thoughts.
0: Mm. Well, Gina, thank you so much for that. As we close the program, I just want to remind listeners that the link for the cathedral will be posted uh, with the show online. And I encourage listeners, please visit. Um, It's a marvelous, marvelous place. Reverend Campbell, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been a distinct pleasure and an honor speaking with you um, I hope you stay in touch and uh, keep us posted about what's going on uh, in your life. Um, the Washington National Cathedral is uh, just a, a wonderful and, and blessed place that continues to grow.
1: And, Karen, thank you so much for inviting me. This has just been quite a pleasure and a joy. Thank you so much.
0: And thank you, listeners, for joining us for the Godspeed Institute today. The Godspeed Institute is an independent educational organization dedicated to promoting religious tolerance and spiritually based living. If you'd like to hear this or any of our previous programs again or send it to someone simply go to Godspeedinstitute.com Please send your comments to info at Godspeedinstitute.com. We always enjoy hearing from you. And join us again as we continue to explore all the world's religions and spiritual belief systems. Until then, we wish you Godspeed on your journey.